Good morning. It is great to be here. Um, my wife and three daughters are right up here. They, uh, well, yeah, once they come up, the girls tend to, like, want to run around and play tag. They act shy. They're not. So feel free to ask them their names. Um, if we could just go ahead and flip to the, the next slide. As I was walking around this morning, uh, you can just go ahead and put everything up there for this first slide. Um, I've noticed quite a few new faces. A lot of you are like, man, there's Andy Yamit. Man, he's still wide. He's getting wider and shorter, you know. And uh, but I just to kind of give you a bit of history. If you don't know who uh, my wife and I and my family are, uh, we were basically we worked with the youth here at Grace. Man, it was like almost ten years ago. And, and I think if you calculate that into pounds, that's about you know. 30 pounds ago, you know, so, uh, but basically I knew that I wanted to do youth ministry and the first four years that Colleen and I were married, we did youth ministry here, absolutely loved it, I think we broke at least, I don't know, 100 things, um, we hid in every orifice of the church while playing games and stuff, but then after that uh, we went to a church in Morton and we were there for four years, during that time a really good friend came to us and said, hey, uh, the average age of the people in Lebanon is 26, 27. Would you be interested in coming and doing youth ministry? My first thought was, Lebanon, isn't that like a war zone? My second thought was, that's really crazy. My third thought was, I have a child that could be a really big ransom, you know. So I was just like, not real sure. So we took a short-term trip. Also, during that time, we were in uh, Morton. September 11th happened. And uh, those of you may remember this. Like, I've always had a heart for explaining and helping the students understand why do we believe what we believe. So when September 11th happened, I realized, like, I had no clue what Islam was about. And so I basically spent about four to six months studying Islam, reading the Quran, finding out what was going on uh, in the Peoria area with Muslims. It's interesting to leave and come back and see how it's growing and spreading. But in that process, the Lord kind of said, hey, uh, I don't want you to tell the kids. I want you to go. And so while we were uh, working over in Morton, we decided to quit there and make the change. And we started doing... Um, we, we went to England because we work with Operation Mobilization. And they said, you know what, you're kind of homegrown Midwest. It might do you well to just travel abroad uh, and work in a Muslim context in a foreign country as a young family, see how it goes. So we were there for two years. It was great, and we decided <laughs> onward. So that was when we went to Lebanon. Uh, we can go ahead and flip to the next slide. Uh, Lebanon, if you look at this picture, it would be on your left. As you read through the Bible, you hear a lot about the cedars of Lebanon. There's two forests that remain. And this is my girls going for a walk through the cedars of Lebanon. But Lebanon is a rich country uh, uh, historically. You know, the first mention of people living in this part of the world is in Genesis 10. Just to put that in context, that's right after Noah's flood. <laughs> wow. You know, so it goes a long way back. There's about 16 political groups, and I have uh, representatives from all of those groups in the school, in my Bible classes. But uh, many people think, oh, well, you live in Lebanon. Don't you ride, like, you know, camel caravans to school and stuff like that? And we don't, um, although they do have camels, but we don't ever get on them. But they're kind of scary animals, and they spit. So uh, this is the 
coastline of Tyre, I believe. But we've got a lot of mountains. You know, when we go back, uh, the mountains will begin to get snow, and we can go down to the Mediterranean uh, in the afternoon. So we have a beautiful climate. Uh, next one. For the diversity of Lebanon, oops, if you could go back to the religion one, um, just to put in perspective, <clears throat> Lebanon is basically, if you were to start in Peoria and you were to drive north to Chicago, that's the, the size uh, of Lebanon. And it's basically from Peoria to El Paso is about the width. So within that group, you've got Christianity, Islam, and Druze, which is a mix of basically Islam, uh, the holy books of Islam, the holy books of Christianity, uh, and reincarnation. And at any given point, I will have all of these kids in my class. So we'll talk about uh, Genesis 3 and how when man falls, uh, or, yeah, when man is tempted, he sins. Um, and what does Satan say? If you eat this, God hasn't said this, you won't die. And my students, the Drews background kids, go, yeah, we're not going to die because we believe in reincarnation. In fact, I know a kid who says that he fell out of a plane into the body that he now has, and he can remember his former life. So these are the kind of things that I deal with uh, as we teach Bible. But if you look at the... The map, you basically have the, the Catholics, the Maronites, and the Orthodox. Those make up the, the IE Christian population. And then we also have the Sunni and the Shias, which is the largely uh, Islamic population. So in my Bible class, I would say at least 90% of them uh, are unbelievers. You know, So I have this awesome opportunity. Go ahead, flip to the next one. If you got our last newspaper, uh, on the left is the city of Beirut. The square is where uh, the school is located that I work. And um, on the, the circle on the left, yeah, straight yeah, across, is where we used to live. And it, it was only like seven miles from the school to our house. Or Yeah, but it took sometimes in excess of an hour to get back and forth. So we're just like, yeah, that's not going to work for my patients. So we ended up moving uh, to a village called Basus, which is the other circle. And on the right, you can see uh, pictures of where we live now. Uh, the middle one being our balcony looking into greater Beirut. Go ahead, flip to the next. This is a question I often get. It's like, do you feel safe? Because Lebanon has a history of fighting, um, turmoil, etc. And here's the thing, like, even just, uh, this would have been August 24th, I think was last Tuesday. There was some fighting, but it's all between families. You know, at this point, uh, we've had two great years of being there. It's... Uh, pretty stable. Most of the fighting is between families and not like political groups getting in, um, getting upset with each other, hijacking, kidnapping foreigners. That stuff has not gone on uh, for several years, so we're, we're very thankful. Uh, also, this question was asked the first week we were here, um, and the Peoria Journal Star ran the front page article that said 28 shootings in Peoria in the last like four days or something. Yeah, and I'm like, I would totally put Colleen and the girls in downtown Beirut and not even worry about it, you know? But like in Peoria, it's, it's even worse. So overall, we feel very, very safe and we love uh, being there. Go to the next one. 
We are studying uh, Arabic in Lebanon. They speak English, Arabic, and French. Uh, my daughters, uh, the two, our oldest one actually takes five to six hours a week of Arabic in school. This year she starts French, and she is e- quickly eclipsing daddy. <laughs> it's pretty embarrassing when you're out in public and uh, you're trying to speak in Arabic and you're five, now six-year-old daughter goes, Daddy, no. And she corrects me and says, you know, with the accent and stuff, I'm like, shut up, kid. You know. So we are studying Arabic. I tell people I'm on the 10-year program uh, because it's like trying to read noodles with dots on it. But it's good. Okay, let's go to the next one. Uh, Basically, and can we flip to the next one, too? Uh, Basically, what I do is I work in a school. Uh, The pictures you see on the right is kind of the volleyball, basketball area. Uh, The school is 150 years old. It was founded by a lady uh, who was coming to the end of her life. She was probably mid to early 60s, and she said, I want to do something for the rest of my life to make a difference for the kingdom. The Lord laid Lebanon on her heart, and she started a school. And that was kind of the beginning of it, and that's where I work. There's about a 1,000 kids, plus or minus a few. Um, but the student diversity, we have, again, all religions that are represented in Lebanon. Um, we have all politics. One of the rules that we have is we can't talk politics at school. You know, the kids always come up and like, do you like Obama? What do you think about Bush? I'm just like, shut your face. <laughs> you know, because we're not allowed to talk about it because politically the country is very, very charged. Um, but what I find interesting is I always ask kids if they're like, you know, what do you think of America? What do you think of the president? And I always ask, what do you think? Do you want world peace? And generally, regardless of what religion you are, that's what people want. They want peace, especially in this country where it's torn in half um, through political divisions. But people want that. And so it's like, you know, the only way peace is going to come is through Christ. It's not through your dumb political group. It's not through anything that you, you do politically. It has to start with Christ. So it opens a lot of doors. But basically at the school, uh, I'll be starting my third year. I teach Bible to grade 11. And the reason I do that is in grade 9 and grade 12, they have government exams where basically the kids are just constantly studying. If they don't pass those, they don't get jobs in Lebanon. Um, but in grade 11, they kind of have a little pressure taken off. So uh, I basically spend time building relationships with them, kind of like a young life campus crusade type person in a school. Uh, I speak in chapel regularly. Uh, it's about uh, eight minutes. But, you know, it's a, and some people say, well, can you really make a difference in eight minutes? At the end of the school year, I inevitably get people who come up and say, hey, I remember that chapel that you talked about this. And I think the Lord uses the stories and the pictures, even though it's a short amount of time, to challenge the, kid, uh, challenge the kids and make them start thinking about who he is and spiritual truth. But uh, also my bread and butter, uh, like I said, about 90% or more of the school is unbelievers, but there is a silent major, or a silent uh, group of students who are believers, and they want to know, why is Jesus God? Why do we believe the Bible? How is this different from Islam? And basically, um, this last year, I had about seven or eight small groups just discipling kids uh, in, in those areas, and it was really good. I could tell you stories for at least another two hours about them, but... Uh, Kind of a job I've taken on for myself is recruiting teachers for the high school. Uh, We have about 110 teachers or volunteers that work in the school. 
and the majority of them are Lebanese. We have a group of foreigners that I'm also in charge of, just making sure they don't die on the vine spiritually uh, while in Lebanon. So we meet on Wednesday night to pray for the school, pray for each other, um, and then we have a group of Armenians. But I was going to say, if you ever want to take a, you know, a year off of teaching, it's a bit like teaching in an inner city urban school. But the kids want to know who you are and the fact that you speak English and you're a foreigner, you're like a magnet and they want to get to know you, they want to talk. So that's a bit of what I do and I kind of already shared about that. Um, before I go to the next slide, I'm just, I'm just rolling here, you know, and it's amazing that you all speak English and I can talk this fast and you're not looking at me going like, you know, because that can be the case. Do you guys have any questions? Yes, ma'am. Um, you hear it on TV all the time, and I, I suspect that it's politically correct thing to say that, oh, Islam is really a religion of peace. Uh, <laughs> wrong answer. I was going to ask you what the truth is on that. Is it, again, is it just that people say that to be politically correct, or is it true that, like, the, the quote, terrorists and all that are just really extremists, and that's not what Islam is about? Um... I would say if you, in that sense, you have to appeal to the holy books. I actually had a, a young lady, her name was Maggie, she asked in Bible class, I would like to compare the life of Muhammad with the life of Christ. And that is a way to have uh, Hezbollah show up at the school and drop me in the ocean, um, to do that in a class. And so I said, well, let's do this, but let's do it outside of class. So... Um, one of the things that I, I shared with her is this. Compare Surah 9, which is the most authoritative surah uh, in the Quran, to the Sermon on the Mount. Basically, Surah 9 is basically uh, lop off the unbelievers' heads, pursue them, fight, make war, when the holy months are finished, i.e. Ramadan. And then you have Jesus in Matthew uh, on the Sermon on the Mount saying, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute. And I said, there's no comparison. And so... The other thing that I would say is one of the, it seems like one of the political agendas of the, of governments to try to bring in radicalism is to push out moderates in the sense of like stand up, say this is what Islam is about. Uh, but I just want to quote, or I just want you to, to think about one person, uh, Benazir Bhutto, she was the prime minister of Pakistan, she was a moderate, and what happened to her? She was assassinated. And so what I say is that generally the moderates are pushed out saying stuff like that, but the, the militants behind that will devour them. I mean, that's just what has been shown over and over. So I would say uh, Islam is not a religion of peace. It's a good question. Um, let's go to the next one because I don't want to take too much more time. <clears throat> This is my class. Uh, we have three sections. This year I had about 70 students. Uh, and what's funny is within this picture, uh, you have uh, religious extremists, whether they be Christian or Muslim, kids who don't care, kids who have never heard, you know, and they all sat listening to me teach them about how God created them. He loves them, wants a relationship with them, etc. And it's an awesome opportunity, you know. Uh, but people often ask you, why in the world, if you have a Muslim family or a Druze family, do people send their kids to your school? And the, this is, the simple answer is this, where the quality of education meets the uh, price of education in Lebanon, that's where Le uh, Louazi, the school, is 
they, it meets right there. And so a lot of parents send their kids and say, ignore, they say in chapel, fall asleep, get problems in Bible class, um, don't listen to anything that they say because they're just, it's basically Christian propaganda. So they basically come because it's a good quality education. They try to ignore um, the, you know, the Bible classes and stuff. But the Lord still works in uh, kids' lives. Let's go to the next one here. I don't know if that's last. As you think of us, uh, basically, you can pray for students and parents to come to know Christ because I'm a big proponent of if you reach a kid, a kid can in turn reach his family. Um, and a classic example of that, we had a kid named Fatty who came to know Christ through a vision. Now, my theology is not uh, very charismatic, uh, but I do believe that when Christ wants to reach people, he will do dreams, visions, etc. And Fatty basically is an example of that. And so Fatty and I uh, have been dis- going through this discipleship thing uh, for the last two years. And he said, you know, if my mom, who's a Muslim, doesn't come to know the Lord, I'm going to be totally angry at God. And I'm like, well, this is a great impetus to start praying for her. So Fatty and I prayed for her and she came to know the Lord back in like March or April of this year. So finishing the school year, um, my discipleship of Fatty was making sure that mom's questions were being answered. And it was funny because she had argued for years with her son about the Bible and God and stuff. And uh, he would ask his mom, hey, do you have any questions? And she goes, you know, Fatty, I know the Bible has all the answers, <laughs> which is pretty funny. So you can pray for that, that the Lord would give me wisdom uh, to seek out students who are trying to seek him. Um, go down to the next one. Students to grow and know Jesus more in their lives. Uh, Luazi is very interesting because at the school, kids can seek, you know, like if they, regardless of their religious background, if they have questions, you know, they can seek out and, you know, we're not going to ridicule them, which is not what would happen in the home. If you had a Muslim kid say, you know, I'm taught that the Bible's not true. What do you think? You know, I have that question a lot, a lot, a lot. And they can, it's a, to come to the school and ask that question is a very safe place. And so uh, I'm very thankful for that. But also these bottom ones are related to our home. Uh, this year our two oldest daughters will go to school. Colleen will only have one. And my wife loves ministry. Um, so just that God would give her wisdom how to raise children to love Jesus because, again, you can imagine in that type of setting, you know, there's all kinds of political opinions, religious opinions, and that we would have wisdom how to raise our girls to love the Lord. Also, ministry with our new neighbors in Basus. Uh, I think they're seeking. Um, Colleen wants some ministry opportunities and then also to speak more Arabic, which is pretty interesting because we were in Peoria just we had been home probably three weeks we were at a mall we were walking around and you just kind of hear you know like when you're in a group you can hear people speaking and you don't really pay attention but if somebody's speaking a foreign language you're like huh and there was this couple that was sitting there talking in Arabic so it was really funny you know and we got to practice a bit of our Arabic and it was sweet but um So those are some things when you think of us you can pray for. Uh, And if we could go to the last slide. 
Uh, over, we have now, we're starting our fifth year being on the mission field, uh, and over the last two years, our support has basically dropped 800 to $1,000 a month. So what we are doing, uh, how you survive that is you basically funnel all your money into what you need. And so we've been doing that really for about the last two years, uh, and the Lord has provided a lot of these things, but we're still, we're basically needing about $500 a month to offset a lot of this stuff, because this is part of what I've been doing while we've been home. And it's been great to see God provide. So um, that's a bit of who I am and what I do. And if you ever want to come to the hottest vacation spot in the Near East, please come over and see us. Our home is your home. Okay? I don't know who I turn this over to now. Okay. And also, we'll be in the back. We have prayer cards. If you don't have, uh, if you don't receive our updates, we'd love to send them to you. We love people praying for us because that's where God works. So we'll be in the back if you have any other questions. Stay here. How, and Colleen, could you come up with the girls, please? How long are you around yet, Andy? Uh, two more. Two more, and you've been here for six, you say, or something like yeah, that. Okay. Well, you've seen the, the prayer requests that they have. We're just going to take a minute and pray for these guys. And I think the girls will stay. Oh, they're perfect. So let's, let's pray for them right now. Father, we thank you for Andy and Colleen and their kids. And Lord, I just really ask that as they return in a couple of weeks, Lord, you would really bless their ministry. Lord, they've got um, requests that they've written down, things that they need. Uh, Lord, and you are our great provider. And we just ask, Lord, that you would provide everything that they need. Uh, finances. Uh, language barriers. Lord, we just really pray that you would help them to uh, get over these obstacles as quickly as they can. Lord, I thank you for their ministry, the success they've had, and we just pray that it would continue to get greater each day. Lord, I pray for opportunities for them, uh, that Andy and Colleen would know exactly what to say to anybody that comes to their door. And Lord, I just really pray that you would give them opportunities that can only come from you. So I thank you once again for them being here today. I just pray, Lord, that once again that you would really bless their ministry. And we'll thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you guys for that. All right, kids, go ahead and head out. I believe someone is waiting for Kids Church. And if they're not, come back. All right. Kids are heading out. Uh, for the rest of you who are sticking with me in here, uh, turn with me uh, in your Bibles to the book of James. We have been uh, going through the book of James in our series, How To's for the Christian Life. And we have been plugging away at the book of James. And so if you brought your Bibles, uh, always a good thing. Uh, turn with me to the book of James and we will be in chapter five. Last book of James. Yay, right? We're getting there. We're towards the end. Or maybe you're sad because it's been such a wonderful series. That's what I hope. Uh, We're going to be in the last chapter of James, James chapter 5. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me then. If you don't, uh, the text will be up on your screen. The name of our sermon this morning is uh, part one of a two-part sermon series here in the last chapter of James called How to Outlast Opposition. How to Outlast Opposition. Uh, And we're going to be taking a look at verses 1 through 6 this morning. Once again, James chapter 5, if you have your text. James chapter 5. I want to begin our sermon this morning with a quick story as I was doing preparations for my sermon. I came across this little article and I found it fascinating. There was a, a king, if you will, during the Middle Ages. In fact, he was probably, if you know your history, maybe the most influential of the European kings during the Middle Ages. And his name was Charlemagne. I don't know if you've heard of King Charlemagne or not, but he was a big name in the Middle Ages and most possibly a believer in Christ, um, King Charlemagne, and about 200 years ago, as I, 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 200 years ago, I read this this story and found it.
that fascinating. I just want to read this article for you. Um, it is said about 200 years ago, the tomb of the great conqueror Charlemagne, the best known and most influential king in the Middle Ages, was opened. And so they found his tomb. And what they found was quite fascinating. Uh, the article continued to say, edited, edited a bit, uh, the sight that the workmen saw was startling. There was his body in a sitting position, clothed in the most elaborate of kingly garments, with a scepter in his bony hand, on his knees lay a copy of the Holy Scriptures, and with a cold, lifeless finger pointing to Mark 8, 36, which says this, For what shall it profit a man if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Isn't that fascinating? I found it fascinating that most likely the most rich, the most affluent man of his time, he was a king, chose to position his body in burial for all eternity, essentially, pointing to a verse that reminds us, what shall it profit a man if he shall gain the entire world? But he goes into the afterlife without his soul. This is an example of a very wealthy man, an example of a very wealthy man who understood what true Riches meant. This was an example of a very wealthy man that understood that true riches was not just material riches, but was being rich towards God, was being rich in his relationship with God. As we get into our text today in James chapter 5, James is going to speak, as he has in the past, very, very strongly. James is going to use some strong words. And in James chapter 5, I believe he's going to talk to a group of wealthy individuals. In fact, he's going to talk to a group of wealthy unbelievers in the first century. And it's my understanding as I read the text that James here is going to, to shift and he's going to start talking to these unbelievers, these very wealthy, these very affluent, these very rich non-Christians who were giving the believers that James was writing to, the Christians in these early churches, difficulty. They were opposing them, you might say. They were persecuting them. And James has a very strong, uh, you could almost say prophetic word. If you're familiar with the Old Testament prophets, they speak very directly to people. And oftentimes they speak very directly to those who are outside of the family of God. And I believe that James has a word for the opposition of this early church. And so James is going to talk in verses 1 through 6, uh, essentially about the opposition. And so I've entitled part 1, The Opposition. What we're going to look at is who are these people who are opposing these early Christians? What are they doing? What's so bad about it? And so James speaks in verses 1 through 6 this week about the opposition. Next week in verses 7 through 10, what we're going to see is James is going to give us the solution. He's going to tell us how to outlast opposition. And he is then going to change address. He's going to speak then in verse 7 to the believers. And he's going to say, this is the opposition you're facing. This is what I want you to know about the opposition. And this is how you respond as a believer in Christ when you face opposition from the outside world. But today, in part one, the opposition, I want us just to focus. I want us just to focus on verses one through six. Take a look at these opposers, if you will, and we're going to learn some things, I believe. One, about opposition, facing opposition as a Christian, 
And secondly, we're going to spend most of our time taking a look at what James has to say about money, about richness, about wealth, because James has some strong words. And so let's go ahead and jump in. We're going to see three things this morning. And so if you have a notebook from out back or you like to take notes in your Bible or something, three points. This is the sermon in a nutshell. Verses one, we're going to see the condemnation of the wealthy. Verse one, James is going to blast these guys and he is going to condemn them Verse 1, the condemnation of the wealthy. Verses 2 through 3, we're going to see the corrosion of their wealth. He's going to condemn them. And then in verses 2 through 3, he's going to show us that their wealth is going to corrode. Thirdly, verses 4 through 6, we're going to see charges. Charges against the wealthy. And so in verses 4 through 6, James is going to point out some specific charges against these wealthy unbelievers. Let's begin by doing this. If you have your text, uh, read with me or up on the screen. Let's read uh, the first six verses of this text and then we'll walk our way through it. Uh, Chapter 5 of James. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted, and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and your silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evident against you, and will eat your flesh like fire. Yowza! You have laid up treasure in the last day. Behold the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud are crying out against you, and the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of the hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fatted your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Reading of God's word. So we're going to jump in. Verse 1. What we see, first point, is the condemnation of the wealthy. Read it with me again. Verse 1. He says, come now. This is his way of saying, listen up, if you will, in the Greek. That's what it means. Listen up. Come now, you rich. And so he identifies who he is speaking to. Come now, you rich. What does he want them to do? What's their response supposed to be? Weep and howl. Why? For the miseries that are coming upon you. Very simply put, in verse 1, he tells them, cry aloud, weep and mourn. I want to hear your voices, you rich, because you need to realize that there are, my translation in the ESV, miseries. There are miseries that are about to come upon you. Notice the tense. It's not yet happened. These miseries have not yet come upon the rich that he's speaking to, but it's future tense. It will come about. And so what James is saying is that there are miseries, i.e. the judgment of God. God's judgment will be at some point coming upon you, I believe, whether at death for them or possibly at this point, And still we expect the return of Christ. And so he says either way, there will be judgment coming upon you. And so weep and howl. There is the condemnation of the wealthy. I want to address this for a brief moment. I could 
tell you a lot more about this. But there's a question that we have to ask and answer. And the question is this. I've tipped my hat as to what I think. Um, who are these people? <laughs> Come now, you rich. He doesn't really identify them other than the fact that they're rich. But what we see, I think, exegetically and from the context, I believe that these people that he is speaking to, he is speaking to, are unbelievers. I don't believe that he's speaking to rich, wealthy Christians here. Um, several reasons. Very, very quickly. One, in the Old Testament, there is a tradition. Uh, the Old Testament prophets would oftentimes not only speak to God's people, Israel, but they would speak to God's enemies. They would speak to other nations. Obadiah is a prime example. Obadiah is, is a book, a prophetic book in the Old Testament of basically... Obadiah is writing to God's people saying, your enemies, the Edomites, God is going to get them. That's the whole book. God's going to get your enemies. And he speaks to God's people about the condemnation of other unbelievers. And I believe this is exactly what James is doing. Secondly, and most convincingly, well, secondly, third is most convincing. Secondly, uh, man, the, the, the language here. Is just strong. I mean, it is strong language of judgment, eternal judgment, I believe. Uh, we don't see this kind of language spoke, uh, spoken of Christians. Third and most convincingly, look at verse 7. If you have your Bibles uh, open, look at verse 7. It's not on the screen. But in verse 7, he very clearly changes addresses, uh, addressees. He begins to talk to the Christians in verse 7. Notice what he says. Be patient, therefore, brothers. He's called them brothers throughout the book of James. He says, be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. And so I take this to mean, in verses 1 through 6, if he calls them brothers in verse 7, that means in verses 1 through 6, he's talking to people who aren't brothers. And so there's a very clear change of address. Okay, we're done with this. He believe, I believe he's talking to rich, unbelieving people. And he speaks to them Telling them, you trust in your wealth, you trust in your riches, you don't trust in Jesus, and there will be misery coming upon you. Secondly, we've seen the condemnation of the wealthy. In verses 2 through 3, James then talks about the corrosion, the corrosion of their wealth. Notice what he says in verses 2 through 3. The words that he uses, your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded. And so he very clearly does this. He looks ahead. He said, there's a future day of judgment coming, you rich, wealthy unbeliever. There's a day of judgment coming. And I look ahead at that day of judgment. And essentially he says, what good is your money going to do you then? That's essentially what he says. He says, your money is going to corrode on that day. It will be worthless. It will burn up. And so in light of that, you should change. Uh, there's a story that I heard that I think makes this point well. Uh, there was a businessman, a very wealthy, very influential uh, businessman. And uh, one day he happened to be uh, greeted by an angel. This is a not true story, by the way. And the angel, in case you hadn't figured it out. And the angel came to him and the angel said, I'm going to give you one wish. Like a genie, you know. Whatever you want, I'm going to give you one wish. And so the businessman thought about it. And he said, this is my one wish. I would like a newspaper a year in advance. And so give me next year's newspaper on this day. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to take a look at the future stock market. Poof, the angel did it. And the man had the newspaper. And as he was 
just overwhelmed with uh, joy and happiness and greed and lust for money, he flipped to the section of the stock market and he started to see the trends and what would happen. And he knew the future of the stock market and he was overwhelmed about all of the money that he could make with this information. And all of a sudden, he flipped uh, to find more information. And on the next page was the obituaries. And as he saw the obituaries, he scanned and noticed his name in the obituaries. And all of a sudden, the wealth that he was going to make didn't seem all that important. And that's exactly what James is saying. He is highlighting the corrosion of their wealth. Now, in this day, James is attacking, in a sense, um, the wealth of their day. Uh, uh, Barclay, a well-known commentator, notes that there are three sources of wealth, three sources of riches in this culture. One had to do with agriculture. And so if you had agriculture, you know, grain and those kind of things, and you had a lot of it, you would be wealthy. Uh, secondly, it came uh, from clothing, uh, kind of like our culture, but even more so. Clothing was very valuable. And if you were rich, you showed it by what you wore. And the clothes themselves were very valuable. Um, thirdly, there was, of course, kind of the everyday stuff, gold and silver, you know, money, currency. And of course, if you have a lot of that, you are wealthy. But notice what James says. He takes these three sources of, of wealth and he portrays the future day to where they're not going to matter. Notice, your riches have rotted. Riches here, I believe, referring to their agricultural riches because the word rotted, it's the idea of like having grain or corn in a bin and just leaving it there so long that it just, it rots. You leave it there for so long, it just rots. And so he says, that's not going to be any good for you. He says, your garments are moth-eaten. Any of you ever had moths in your closet before? Uh, my closet growing up was an upstairs closet, and it was my closet, but it was the biggest closet. And so we also held uh, all sorts of, you know, everyone's clothing kind of went into a corner of my closet. And it was uh, close to the attic. We had an attic opening, and we really had problems with moths in my Closet, And so much of my clothing growing up, we really battled moths because you put a shirt on and, oh, you know, there's the hole. You're like, oh, man, <laughs> it, it rots. And, he, and James says, those fancy clothes of yours at some point are going to corrode. He says, your gold and silver, they are corrode. They rust in a sense, if you will. A bit of hyperbole here. I think he's saying it's not going to matter. It's not going to matter. And so he says that. But then notice what he also says at the tail end of verse 3. He says, and their corrosion will be evidence against you. Essentially, he says, when the, when the day comes and all of that stuff corrodes and it's useless, all of that stuff that you loved, all of that stuff that you served, that stuff, your stuff corroding away on the day of judgment will be evidence it will be evidence against you that you never trusted in Jesus, that you loved all of those things. And so he says, not only are they going to corrode, but like a witness at a trial, they're going to stand and testify that you loved them more than you loved Jesus. Notice he also adds this, and their corrosion will be evidenced against you. And we have this stunningly horrific image and will eat your flesh like fire. It will eat your flesh like fire. He says, not only will it testify against you, but it will actually be an instrument of judgment against you. That's the image of fire in the, in the Old and New Testament. Most all the time, most all the time, is an image of judgment. 
And so he says, your wealth will corrode. And then he adds this at the tail end of verse 3. You have laid up your treasures in the last days. Essentially what he's saying is, you have hoarded your wealth. I think this is the meaning of laid up your treasures. You have accumulated, you have accumulated more and more and more in the last day. You're saving, you're saving, and you've gotten to the point where you're not just saving, you are hoarding, if you will. You're hoarding. Um, Now, I think we all know what hoarding means, but just in case you need a visual image for what hoarding is, I will use my son, because I can. I'm a pastor. Um... Notice, let's just, let's just count the passes in his hand, shall we? We got this, I think it was sometime this week, I don't know. It was just hilarious. And so, um, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Seven passes. And so we're putting our son to bed, and we get him, he, you know, we let him have as many passes as he wants at bedtime. And he was not happy with two or three. He grabbed all of them, and he took them, as you can see, to bed with him. If you want a visual for what hoarding is, there it is. My son, the hoarder. Okay, we can get them off. Um, it's, it's taking more than what you need. It's keeping more than what you need. And he says these people have way more than what they need. And they're hoarding it. They're not using it effectively. I want to share a quick, a quick story with you. Chuck Swindoll, one of his, in one of his books, writes this story of a, of a woman, I believe, in Tampa, Florida. And I want to read this little section out of this book by Chuck Swindoll. Wonderful image of how we can so easily hoard our stuff. Chuck says this, Miss Bertha Adams, 71 years old, died alone in West Palm Beach, West Palm Beach, Florida, on Easter Sunday. This was several years ago. The coroner's report read this, cause of death, malnutrition. She had wasted away to a meager 50 pounds. When the state authorities made their preliminary investigation of Mrs. Adams' home, they found a veritable pig pen, the biggest mess you can imagine, end quote. The seasoned inspector declared he'd never seen a dwelling in greater disarray. The woman had begged for food from neighbors' back doors and had gotten what clothing she had from the Salvation Army. From all outward appearances, she was a penniless recluse, a pitiful and forgotten widow. And he continues to say, but such was not the case. Amid the jumble of her unclean, disheveled belongings, the officials found two keys to safe deposit boxes at two different local banks. In the first deposit box were over 700 AT&T stock certificates, plus hundreds of others, hundreds of other valuable certificates, bonds, solid financial securities, not to mention a stack of cash amounting to nearly $200,000. As if that were not enough, the second box contained $600,000, adding the net worth of both boxes they found uh, they were found to be worth well over a million dollars. And so here's a woman who died of malnutrition with rags on her back who hoarded what she had. This is what James is saying. We've seen the condemnation of wealth. We have seen the corrosion of wealth. In verses 4 through 6, James now is going to give charges against the wealthy. He's essentially going to say, not only have you hoarded, not only will this stuff be meaningless, But here are some specific things, and I believe these things were done against the church, against these believers. Here are some specific charges against the wealthy. Number one, 
is found in verse 4. They withheld wages. And so obviously they were rich. They were landowners. They were business owners. They withheld their wages. Verse 4. Behold, the wages of the laborers, I take it to be the Christians here, who mowed your fields and others, surely, uh, which, kept, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. And so he says, you have withheld wages. You didn't pay them on time. You didn't pay them at all. You didn't pay them in a timely manner. You cheated them on their wealth. And in this culture, folks, if you were a day laborer, you lived not month to month, day to day. You lived day to day. And so if your employee did not pay you that day, you did not eat that night. And so he says, you've withheld wages. They've cried out to you. They don't, you don't, you're not listening. Ah, but someone is listening. The Lord of hosts. He is listening. Secondly, they have lived, and this is where it gets close to home, in luxurious, selfish extravagance. They have lived their lives in luxurious, luxurious, yes, yeah, selfish extravagance. Verse 5, you have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulging. You have fatted your hearts in a day. A slaughter. Luxury here, the word luxury literally means soft. It means you've lived a soft life. Self-indulgence, uh, one commentary defines it this way. I think it's a good, a good definition. To be self-indulgent is to, quote, to indulge oneself excessively in satisfying one's own appetites and desires. And so essentially what he's saying is you have lived a soft life of luxury. You eat whatever you want, you get whatever you want, you do whatever you want to whomever you want, and it's all about you and glutting yourself. And then notice the image here. Man, he says, you have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. Does that remind you of anything? Is that a picture that comes to your mind? There is a picture that comes to mind that is intended to come to mind. And that is the fattening up of an animal. Maybe back in those days, you would fat up your animal to eat or to go sacrifice uh, to God if you were a Jew. Um, we do this in our day. I had a really pleasant conversation with uh, Kevin Yergler, who uh, has pigs, and he, you know, he does this. He raises pigs and he sells them. And so, just some quick information that you might find interesting. I did. And when he gets the pigs, they weigh about 50 pounds, and so they're small little oinklers, you know, and 50 pounds. But by the time that he's done with them, in a mere four months, 120 days, uh, they get up to upwards of 300 pounds. <laughs> so talk about fattening them up. Uh, and I, this is kind of a silly question I asked Kevin, but I said, do you think the pigs like it when they're getting fat? <laughs> do you think they enjoy the fattening process? And he said, well, I'd imagine they do. I mean, of course, we don't talk to them and ask them or anything. Or, I don't know, Kevin, you may, I don't know, but <laughs> probably not, you know. But I think they enjoy it, you know. Uh, it, they enjoy the fat. I mean, think about it. I'm getting food. I'm getting fat. This is wonderful. I'm being provided for more and more and more. And I'm eating and eating and eating. But what they don't know is the end. <laughs> what they don't know is the purpose for which they're fattening or being fattened for, and that is slaughter. And what James says is he says these rich people are living and eating and spending and doing everything. They're unbelievers. And, and, and they're just fattening their hearts more and more and more. And they're getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And what they don't know is that they're actually making their judgment day, their day of slaughter, worse. That is a powerful image that James uses. Third, murder. Notice this, verse 6. You have condemned, which is a legal word, you have condemned and murdered the righteous person. Um, 
either righteous in the sense of innocent or righteous in the sense of a believer in Jesus, a righteous person. He does not resist you. I take that to mean he can't resist you. He, he, he can't. You do whatever you want with him. He can't resist you. I think this could mean a couple things. First of all, uh, it could, it, it's a legal word. And so these rich people are taking these believers to court. Maybe they're putting them to death even. Maybe these believers uh, owe them money and they're putting them to death. Or maybe they're just making up junk, using their money, using their influence. And literally, it could refer to literal murder, putting these believers to death, using their finances, using their clout. It could mean murder in a figurative sense. They could be taking them to court to take their property, to take their money. And by doing so, they're murdering them. They don't have any money to eat off of. Um, And so they've withheld wages. They've lived in self, uh, luxurious uh, self-indulgence. They've murdered. And so we've seen the text here, verses 1 through 6. So now, what I want us to do with our remaining time is I want us to ask, uh, what, so what? <laughs> I mean, so what? Uh, you, most of us in here are believers. Um, we've placed our faith in Jesus Christ. We've been born again. Uh, the Spirit lives in us, and we are made right with Christ through faith alone by the blood of Jesus, and we're believers. And he's talking to unbelievers. And so, well, in a sense, he's addressing unbelievers, but he's talking to Christians here. Notice, he makes the application in verse 7. Be patient, therefore, brothers. And so, first of all, what can we learn uh, First, I have a general application for us. The general application about facing opposition. What James is doing is he's addressing, I believe, this opposition. They're opposing the Christians, and this is what they're doing to them. And so our first application, and that's pretty simple, is this. As believers, we will face opposition. Plain and simple. General application number one. We will face opposition. Now, our opposition here in the States may not look like this. It may look very similar to this, uh, but we will face opposition uh, to the world. Jesus says, if they hated me, they will hate you. And so we inevitably will face opposition. It could look like a lot of different things. Maybe there's a coworker at work and you and her don't get along and she gossips about you. She knows you're a Christian. She knows what you stand for and she is opposing you to other employees. Maybe it's your boss, the guy that you work for. He knows that you are a religious guy. He knows that you hold to morals and he treats you unfairly. Maybe he even knows that the kind of lifestyle that he leads, you would disapprove of because you're a Christian. And so he opposes you as an employee. Maybe uh, it's a mother and she is telling her kids, she is encouraging her kids to make fun of yours, to treat your kids wrongly, to leave them out of school groups because she doesn't like you. She knows you stand for the truth. She knows that your kids may be different. Whatever that is, I don't... I don't know what that could look like, but I want to pose the question to you. What does opposition look like to you? What does opposition to the Christian faith look like in your life? Because what James is going to do is he's going to tell us next week, this is how you get through it. We're going to get there next week. But the overarching principle is don't be alarmed. Don't be unaware. This this happens. We will face opposition. Secondly, and this is where we'll spend the bulk of our time. I think we have a lot to learn about James' teaching on wealth, on riches. Now, obviously, he's speaking to unbelievers here. But I think we can learn lessons about what James says about money. He's condemning and speaking against certain things, against unbelievers. But we certainly, as believers, can learn from these things. And so I've got um, a couple applications. The first application, as it relates to specific money 
applications that we can take away from this passage. First of all, again, not rocket science. We won't take it with us. That's application number one. We won't take it with us, and that's referring to money. We won't take it with us when we die. James has spoken of the corrosion of wealth, and he says there's coming a day when you stand before Jesus Christ that your wealth... It's going to burn. You're not going to take it with us. Uh, I've heard Chuck Swindoll say that he's never seen um, a hearse pulling a U-Haul. It just doesn't happen. There's a story told by Pastor Ray Stedman. Um, he was uh, speaking at a convention, and he didn't realize that the attire for one particular evening was a little bit more than what he needed. And so Pastor Ray Stedman... Uh, thought, well, how can I, where can I go rent a suit? Where can I get a suit for cheap? And so he, he had this bright idea, although I would confess this would not be my idea, is he went to a funeral home. He said, well, surely they have, you know, jackets and stuff that they put on the, the, the deceased that they'll lend to me or rent to me for, for very cheap. I don't know what he was thinking, but he did. And so he went and, and they gave him one. And so he had this suit and he got, he, he tells the story and he gets up to preach and he has a, a, a habit of putting his hands in, in his, you know, in his pockets, the jacket pockets. And he, and he says he goes to do that and he realizes that they've been sewn up, that there are no pockets for Jackets that come from the funeral home. And then he realized, he said, it hit me like a ton of bricks. What are they going to do with it? <laughs> what are they going to take with them? Their money, their credit cards, their IR, IR uh, you know, their 401k? No. <laughs> and that's what James is saying here. We, we don't take it with us. And so what that means then is as believers, we are free to use God's money, God's money. As he intends. We're free to be generous. We're free to save well. And we're free to make good financial decisions. And so the question I want to ask you is this. How are you using your money? Because you're not going to take it with you. It's just not going to go with you. Yeah, it may get passed on inheritance, that kind of thing. You know, eventually, when Jesus comes back, all the money, all the wealth, all the goods, it's going to burn. So ultimately, it will not be. And so, how are you using your funds? Are you using it to impact eternity? Are you using it for things of the kingdom that may have an impact into eternal life? Are you faithful? The number one question, are you faithfully giving to the local church? Secondly, are you faithfully being generous to opportunities that may come your way? Maybe it's opportunities that come your way in church, like the Kellners. Or... We didn't plan it that way, by the way. It's not like we, uh, you know, it's not like we're in, in tandem here. Um, how are you using it? Maybe investing in other ministries, other missionaries, whatever it may be. How are you using the money that God has entrusted it to you? Tommy Nelson, Pastor Tommy Nelson down in Dallas says this. If God has not touched your pocketbook, he has not touched your life. Get that? If God has not touched your pocketbook, he has not touched your life. If God cannot get your co- pocketbook, he cannot get you. And so does God have you? Better question. Does God have your pocketbook? I want to ask, what does God then have to say to rich believers? James here is speaking, and God is speaking through James, to rich unbelievers. But what, is, what does God have to say to those of us who are believers who are rich? God has blessed us. Um, well, he says this, 1 Timothy 6, 17 and 18. If you have your Bibles and you want to turn there, you can. It's not going to be on the text, uh, on the screen. 1 Timothy 6. Verses 17 through 18. This is what God says. And so if you would consider yourself to be wealthy, to be rich, maybe middle class, upper middle class, whatever. Actually, since we're in America, we're all actually pretty rich. Um, that's another sermon for another day. If you consider yourself to be in this, this is, God is speaking to you. Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain. But... 
here's what they should do. To put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous, and to be willing to share. And so I want to ask a question. Is this you? Would you describe yourself to be proud? Are you proud? He says, command those who are rich not to be proud. Are you proud? Do you think that your money comes alone from your hard work or from your good business sense or from your good business plan or from sound planning? Well, sure, money comes from that, but ultimately, does it really come from that? No, it comes from God. Secondly, what are you fixing your hope on? Uh, Those of us who are wealthy, who are rich, um, wherever we fall on the scale, it's so easy for us to have our security and our hope in the future in what we have in our bank account and what we have in our 401k, and what we have in our savings. We feel more secure about our future if our savings account is going up, and if our IRA is doing well. We tend to think that our future is secure. And God says, don't put your hope in that junk. Put your hope in me, is what he says. Thirdly, he says, command them to do good. Are you generous in good deeds, uh, with your money and otherwise? Are you generous? Do you give to the needs of others? I think to a large degree, this is a heart issue. And so when you hear of an opportunity, when you hear of a need in church, elsewhere, you know, in your family, in your coworkers, there's a need that comes up. Check yourself. What do you think? Is the first thing you say, I can't afford it. I can't do that. I'm too far in debt. I can't, you know, is, it, is the first thing that comes to your heart a negative, stingy, ungenerous kind of a thing? Or is it, maybe, <laughs> let me see, what can we do? What is your heart attitude about being generous? Secondly, <clears throat> he says, second application, not only do we not take it with us, but we need to avoid hoarding. Very clearly, James lambasts these unbelievers for hoarding what they have. And so I think a very clear second principle is is that our money should not be hoarded for self-indulgence. Our money should not be hoarded for self-indulgence. And the question here that automatically came to my mind is, well, what's the difference? What's the difference between saving money and hoarding money? Is there a difference? I think there is. Um, It may be a little gray. Pastor Jeff Miller says this. I think it's helpful. He says, savings... Saving money is planning for future need. Saving is planning for future need. Hoarding is planning for future indulgence. I think that's a helpful, a helpful definition. Um, and we just kind of have to ask ourselves these kind of questions. Um, how much are we saving? Why are we saving? What is the motivation for our saving? Is that out of fear? Is it because of the false sense of security that our big savings account will get? Uh, or is it for real, legitimate future needs? Uh, Proverbs speaks highly about savings. It's not a bad thing. But at some point, you cross the line between saving and hoarding. And it's not clear. I, I don't know what it is for me. I don't know what it is for you. But we have to define that. We have to define where that line is. And so here's something that Shelly and I did, and I encourage you to do this. Very practically speaking, do you have a budget? Do you have a working budget, not just in your mind, okay, a working budget for your personal family finances? And you know what you make, what you take in, where your expenses are. And I'm not just talking about like like regular expenses, everything that you spend. Okay, this is my wife coming out at me. We keep track of everything 
pretty much, that we spend. Cash, credit, it doesn't matter. We know exactly where our money is going to. And the point is this. I want to really, really strongly encourage you to do this. One, because it's financially healthy. Two, because if you have that together, you know where your money is coming from, you know where it's going out, you can then track how much are you saving every month? How much are you saving every year? And then you define that. Is it hoarding or is it savings? Because you compare that then to what you're spending. Shelley and I looked for a quarter, the first quarter of the year, and we saw how much percentage-wise of our gross income, how much we were saving for whatever, college, whatever, whatever, all savings categories. And we looked at that. And then we said, okay, how much are we spending on what James maybe calls self-indulgence? That's not wrong, James. I mean, Paul even says here, God has given us all things for our enjoyment. So it's not wrong to go out to dinner or anything like that. But we really have to consider at what point is it extravagant? At what point are we being overly self-indulgent? And so we looked at our spending. How much do we spend on eating out, on Cappuccinos from Starbucks on whatever, you know, include whatever you want in there. Things that we would just say, this is spending on us, you know. And we saw that number and then we compared it to how much we're saving. And so then you say, well, are we spending more? Are we saving? And then we looked at how much we were giving to the church and to other people. And and then when you look at those three numbers, what you really practically get is how much am I saving? Okay, am I hoarding or not? How much am I spending? Am I spending too much on me or am I not? How much am I giving? Am I giving faithfully or not? And if you do that, you might find something very interesting. You might just find out if you and I are guilty of what James is speaking so strongly about in the world. And so I want to strongly encourage you to do that. Strongly. Secondly, avoid Thirdly, actually, avoid self-indulgence. Again, this is hard to define. Someone asked John Rockefeller, how much money is enough? How much wealth is enough? Do you know what he said? Just a little bit more. That's enough. Just a little bit more. And so in closing, I want to ask you this. We began our sermon with the story of Charlemagne. And he was a king, and he pointed out very clearly from life till death What Jesus said in Mark 8, 36, For what shall it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his soul? I'm going to ask you this morning, what are you living for? Are you in that category that you are attempting to gain the entire world, but at the end of life, either at death or when Jesus comes back, will you lose your soul because you're living for security, for money, for things? Or are you living for Jesus? Is your trust in Jesus or is it in the finances that you have? If you don't, if you don't know Jesus, if you're hearing this sermon and you're like, man, that's me. He's talking about me. I am that. I want you to know that while James says there is judgment on those who do not believe in Jesus, there are miseries coming upon you. The Bible is also very clear that if you place your faith in Jesus Christ, that there is no misery, and that there is no judgment, that the judgment of a holy father rested upon his holy son, and his wrath was for you, and you do not have to howl and be miserable for judgment to come, because Jesus Christ has paid that for you. And if you have not done that, I invite you to do that immediately, today. It's not a magical formula. You ask Jesus to save you, to forgive you, to heal you. You trust in him and what he's done in the cross. And then you can say, like Emperor Charlemagne and like Jesus, for what shall it profit a man if he shall gain the whole world and lose his soul? Would you pray with me?
Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that it's so practical, that it speaks very clearly to our hearts and lives. Father, I pray that you would help us to take everything that we've heard, the areas that you want us to change, that we would be so open uh, to change that, whether it's saving more or giving more, whether it's spending more or, or spending less. I pray that you would help us to be sensitive to what it is that you would have for us. We thank you that you speak strongly against those who oppose us against the unbelieving world. Father, their fate is not with you for eternity, but you sent your son so that they may believe in him as we have believed in him. And so I pray, Father, that there, if there are people that we know who are in this category, they're unbelievers and there's miseries coming upon them, pray that you would help uh, our hearts just to be passionate, to let them know of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we ask it in Jesus' name.